This morning we continue a series called Stuff, developing a theology of money and possessions. Throughout this series, we're examining our relationship with money. We're thinking about what we think and how we feel about our income and assets. When you think about your stuff, how do you feel? Confident? Content? Peaceful? Grateful? Or would you say guilty, angry, envious, ashamed? As we study what the Bible says about money, we're finding what we think and feel about it says a lot about the people we're becoming. So let's invite God to continue to guide us as we examine the scriptures and examine our souls. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we turn again this morning to the sensitive but significant subject of money, we ask you to do what you've done in previous weeks. Help us ask the hard questions about our possessions. Help us recognize your wisdom and help us trust it. We pray it in the name of King Jesus. Amen. I could take you to the moment I was diagnosed. I wasn't in a hospital or a clinic. There were no medical professionals present. I didn't need them. I was 16 years old, sitting in Mr. Snow's 10th grade biology class. When I identified my lifelong malady by flipping through my textbook. The page featured Ishihara color test plates. They looked something like this. Are you familiar with these? Now, I'm curious what numbers you see when you look at these circles. In fact, I'd like for you to walk me through this. We're going to work left to right. Will you help me? What's the first one? Next. Next. Next line. Next. Oh, wait, wait. Go back. Go back. Sorry. Go back to the six. There we go. Uh, Let's go bottom row. Here we go. Eight. Twelve. All right. Let me tell you. I only see 16, 8, and 9. Now, when I first saw a chart like this, it took me a few moments to clue into its significance. I whispered to the bloke sitting next to me, what do you see? I had no idea I was colorblind. As I perused the pages of my textbook, I discovered I was unable to see the numbers on more than half of the color plates. But in that moment, everything made sense. All my life, people have been correcting me for mistaking green for brown or purple for blue. Now I know why. Here's another test. Colored normal individuals see three letters. What letters do you see? R, Y, and U. I simply see you. Here's chart number three. What do you see? Okay, I heard it. S, B, and E. I only see the S. Are some of you realizing, is is anyone self-diagnosing right now? I've been there, brother. Hey, 
I regularly have epiphanies about color. Not long ago, a friend informed me that the wrapper to a Hershey's candy bar is brown, not black. Who knew? Okay, what about chart number four? What do you see? 806. I just see a bunch of dots. How about this one? What do you see? Color normal individuals see a horse. Now, people with my color blindness see a goat. Does anybody see the goat? Come on, people! There's a goat. His head's over on the right side. His horns come up like that. What's wrong with you people? Okay, here's one more. What do you see? Look carefully. A cup. Do you see the cup? Yeah. Color normal individuals see a cup. Color blind individuals see Neil Diamond. (laughs) Everything in my life is seen through these imperfect eyes. Going to the sock drawer is a decidedly different experience for me than it is for you. I actually have a touch of anxiety if I have to pick out my own clothes without Suzanne's input. No, really, I have to memorize what goes with what. How did I do today, huh? (laughs) Yeah, Suzanne picked it out! Now, I believe that my colorblindness illustrates well what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What does Jesus mean? What's he talking about? Is he talking about holiness? Good moral living? It's hard to follow the metaphor. And this enigmatic text seems out of place in its context in Matthew chapter 6. We find it in the chapter tucked between two passages about money. We read them recently. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then we jump down to verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The passage about the eyes is placed right in the middle of these two phrases. Why? While misplaced at first glance, the location of the text helps us find its meaning, a meaning that would have been readily understood by the first century Jewish audience of Jesus, who were well acquainted with the expression of having a good eye or a bad eye. I'll read the passage again from a more literal translation. Matthew 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this is essential. In first century Judaism and before, if you had a good eye, it meant you were generous. If you had a bad eye, it meant you were stingy. You see, Jesus isn't talking about eyesight at all. He's inviting us to consider what we think about money, how we feel about money. Because what's in our heads and hearts when money's the topic says a lot more about us than we think. We find this analogy throughout Jewish wisdom literature. Proverbs 28 verse 22, the New International Version, rightly translates the passage. The stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. But in Hebrew, the text literally reads, an evil eye is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. Conversely, in Proverbs 22.9, the NIV reads, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. More literally, the verse says, Whoever has a good eye will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. A good eye means you're generous. A bad eye means you're stingy. Now, we don't know the origin of the metaphor, but I imagine it developed naturally from an understanding of the attitudes of generosity and stinginess. If you are a generous person, it is through those lenses you will see love in life. If you are a stingy, tight-fisted person, that condition, like colorblindness, will affect the way you see everything and everyone, your co-workers, friends, family, stinginess, colors your whole life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the life of his followers, people who live in tune with what God is doing on the earth, and he says his people are generous people. His disciples don't just give, they naturally give. It's just a part of who they are. It's the lenses through which they see life. And Jesus says the consequence of wearing the wrong lenses is a dark heart. Those lenses will tint your most important decisions. They will shade your most important relationships. Yes, stingy people see the world, but what they see is distorted. Now, if that's true, parents, if you had to choose between teaching your children to make money or be generous, which would you choose? Which are you choosing? Andy Stanley sums up the problem nicely. He says, we celebrate generosity, but we envy accumulation. We're in trouble, aren't we? So this morning, I'm going to encourage you to excel in the grace of giving. Let me ask you, are you a generous person? If we ask the people closest to you to rate your generosity quotient on a scale of 1 to 10, how would they score you? The discipline of generosity is a critical component 
of your discipleship to Jesus. Generosity is how you bury your treasure in heaven. Generosity is how you put your possessions in their proper place. Generosity is how to keep money from being your master. It's so important. I would be committing pastoral malpractice if I didn't talk about it. It's true. But that doesn't make it easy to hear. Oh, there's something about money. We might be okay hearing sermons on other tough topics. Surrender, sacrifice, serving. Lust, sure. Hell, preach it, pastor. Money, the walls go up. But if the walls have gone up in your heart, Ask yourself, why? Does it say anything important about you? Now, if you brought a guest with you for the first time, this is the moment you whisper in their ear, Troy doesn't normally talk about money, I promise. (laughs) My girls would say, awkward. (laughs) But you know, the Apostle Paul had his own awkward conversation about giving. It's found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Let me set the scene. Paul's writing to a community of Christ followers in Corinth. Corinth was a port city, which meant it was an important city. The Roman governor ruled from Corinth. The people of Corinth were cosmopolitan, educated, and relatively prosperous. The culture was competitive, and its residents were capable. Well, as goes the city, so goes the church. In comparison to other churches in other Roman cities, the followers of Jesus at Corinth were prosperous and put together. They lived in relative comfort. Meanwhile, the Christians in Jerusalem were facing fierce persecution and extreme poverty. Their circumstances were vastly divergent. So, as the Apostle Paul traveled through the empire talking about Jesus, he asked the Gentile or non-Jewish Christians to set aside money to help their fellow believers in Jerusalem. Now, this collection is referenced multiple times throughout Paul's letters in the New Testament and specifically to the church at Corinth. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he asked them to pitch in. You can read about it sometime in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Apparently, They responded generously at first, probably by taking a collection regularly. But it seems the church at Corinth had slacked off in their concern. So, in the letter we call 2 Corinthians, Paul spends a lengthy section, two whole chapters in our English Bibles, encouraging them to be generous. But you can tell it's a touchy subject because of the way Paul speaks of money. He's very careful to specify how the money will be used, how it will be handled. Paul won't get a dime of it. And I think it's interesting. Not once through this section does Paul use a single Greek word for money. It's almost as if he's tiptoeing around the subject so they wouldn't miss the point. Now, he's not afraid of them. Paul's not known for his timid letters, especially to the church at Corinth. But Paul knows when to be direct and when a little more respectful dialogue is necessary. To introduce the matter, he describes the generosity of the Macedonian churches, the churches in Philippi, Berea, 
in Thessalonica, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Note how he phrases this subject. He wants the church at Corinth to know about the grace God gave the Macedonian churches. Grace, as we usually think of it, is the undeserved favor given by God to his people. It can't be earned. It doesn't need to be. God gives it freely. But here, Paul expands our definition of grace. Look how he describes it in verse 2. In the midst of a severe trial, a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. You see, grace in 2 Corinthians 8 is sacrificial generosity. Do the math with me. Very severe trial, plus extreme poverty, plus joy, equals generosity. That doesn't add up to me. But that's grace. You see, these churches in Macedonia respond to the grace of God with the grace of generosity. God gave, so they gave. They didn't give to earn God's gift, but God's grace to them naturally flowed into generosity. That's because a life transformed by the grace of Christ includes a wallet transformed by the grace of Christ. But here's the awkward point Paul makes. Unlike the church at Corinth, the churches of Macedonia are flat broke. Unlike the church at Corinth, the churches of Macedonia face persecution. Yet they gave. And they gave with overflowing joy. A key word in this chapter, in addition to grace, is overflow. Parasuo in Greek. Our English translations don't reflect this, but different forms of the word appear multiple times. Their overflowing joy overflowed and rich generosity. And Paul would want us to experience the same joy and respond with the same generosity. He'd want us to excel in the grace of giving. Yes, God's grace is God's undeserved love and forgiveness. Grace is what God's done for us. Grace is what God's done in us. But according to Paul, it's also what God wants to do through us. Last week, I shared with you Dallas Willard's definition of grace. He said, grace is God acting in your life to accomplish what you cannot. What does this grace mean for the Macedonian churches? How did they experience God's grace? Well, God inspired them to give of their resources with what seems to be mere reckless generosity. Paul explains, verse 3, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. It seems Paul didn't even bother to ask them for help. They needed help. But they heard about their Jewish brothers and sisters suffering, and they wanted to contribute. In fact, they begged Paul to let them contribute. Paul said they gave beyond their ability. That means it hurt. That means they sacrificed. I read a story about a preacher who came before his congregation to scold them about their giving. 
But he didn't challenge them to give more. He asked them to stop giving. They were giving too much, and he feared for their livelihood. Paul was reluctant to receive the offering of the Macedonian churches, but their generosity came from the grace God gave them, and Paul knew better than to refuse it. This reminds me. Generosity is not just for the rich. Generosity is not something reserved for philanthropists like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. The spirit of generosity is a defining characteristic of all God's people, rich or poor, young or not so young. A lot of Christians early in their careers are in a holding pattern, pointing to the day when they'll have wealth, when they can start being generous. They have grand ambitions to be billionaires so they can support whole missions efforts in impoverished countries. It's an incredible objective. But I'll tell you, over the years, I found if they aren't generous with little, they're seldom generous with much. By then, money has too firm a grip. Paul tells the story of these churches to the north to inspire the church of Corinth to continue in their generosity. Verse 6, so we urged Titus, just as we had earlier made a beginning, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Titus is a colleague of Paul. He sent him ahead into Corinth uh, to collect, to, to take this collection uh, for the, the believers in Jerusalem. Paul says to them, you started to set money aside. Now finish that work you started. Bring to completion, here he goes again, this act of grace. Then comes the challenge, verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. That word excel is the same word from verse 2, overflow. Paul pleads, excel in the grace of of giving. Excel in the grace of giving. Now the Corinthian church was known for its giftedness. We know this from Paul's first letter to them. Paul says to this gifted church, a church blessed by God, he says, since you excel in so much, since you excel in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and love, why not excel in generosity. Let's talk about us. May I be candid? I've been journeying with you for a long time now. And I'll tell you, you're a talented bunch. As I look at you individually, as I look at you collectively, God has blessed this community with many, many things. Gifts, talents, resources. I've never been a part of a church with such a high percentage of high-capacity people who have been given opportunity after opportunity. You have the Midas touch. You excel at whatever you put your mind to. So I say to you, as Paul said to the Corinthians, just as you excel in everything else, excel 
in the grace of giving. Excel in the grace of giving. Practically speaking, what does this mean for us? Should generosity be tempered? Of course. The Proverbs warn us to be careful how we give, and we want to be good stewards of what God has given us. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Neither can we get legalistic about possessions. We're not going to set rules about how much house is too much house, how much car is too much car. But we need to allow the principle of generosity to guide our financial decisions. To be practical, I want to share some of my favorite words on wealth. I'll start with a passage we read in the first week of our stuff series. If you missed it, go back, listen to it on the podcast. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, these are Paul's words to the rich. And by the way, remember in our first week, by the world standards, by virtue of us living in America, the vast majority of us are rich. So this is written to you. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now look at the look at this. The freedom of this passage. He starts by commanding the rich not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in their wealth. And he reminds us it is perfectly legitimate to find enjoyment in your stuff. Everybody following me? Next verse, verse 18. Command them, the rich, to do good. To be rich in good deeds. And to be generous and willing to share. And this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Friends, if we simply ponder these passages, these three verses, we'll find answers to most of our questions about money and possession. So maybe that's what you need to do. Spend a little time unpacking 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19 and applying it to your world. Let me give you more words of wisdom. I like the balance offered by 18th century minister John Wesley who said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I like that axiom. Because it offers freedom as well as responsibility. But you'll note there isn't a lot of clarity. Sometimes I just wish God would tell me exactly what to do with my money. Should I buy this car or that one? How much should I spend dining out? I wish he'd make it crystal clear to me. I wouldn't require angelic visitation. A simple email will do. From God at God.com. Dear Troy, buy the 42-inch TV, not the 50-inch TV. Grace and peace. For some reason, God doesn't make everything black and white. Maybe one reason is he wants us to process and pray. Because it's in the process of wrestling with these questions that he molds us and shapes us into generous people. There's another piece of wisdom. I knew a missionary who wisely advised, give until it hurts, then give until it stops hurting. 
What's he talking about? He's talking about not letting money win our hearts. Affection. Learning the grace of giving by sacrificing. And can I just say, there's a difference between hurt and harm. Maybe my favorite quote on the matter, C.S. Lewis sums up generously, generosity nicely, confessing, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity's expenditure excludes them. Did anybody need to read that? Examine your personal finances. How do you spend your paycheck each month? Jesus said your treasure is where your heart is. What does your checkbook tell you about your spirituality? Here's what I'll tell you. Excel in the grace of giving. Excel in the grace of giving. I'm going to give you three things to think about. In fact, you can think of this as your homework for the week. We'll just do it a little earlier in the service. Your assignment is lifted from the book How to Be Rich by Andy Stanley. I've recommended this book two or three times through this series. I mean, I'm going to still recommend it. We'll keep it stocked in our bookstore if you'd like to pick up a copy, download it on audio, mull it over. Learn from, from Andy Stanley and his wise words. In this book, Andy recommends three types of giving for us to consider. And here's the first one. Priority giving. Priority giving. Let me tell you what I mean. No matter how rich you feel, no matter how poor you feel, the time to start giving is now. This is the season. Generosity begins wherever you are. Will you be able to give more later? Probably. Does God want you to give in a way that could harm your family? Of course not. But he may want you to sacrifice a little. He may be asking you to live on less so others can have more. What's God asking you to give or give up in this season? I want you to think of percentage giving. You got to think percentages. Dollar figures won't do. Here's the truth. If Bill Gates dropped $1,000 on a nonprofit organization, he wouldn't even feel it, would he? If Bill Gates dropped $10,000 on a nonprofit organization, he wouldn't even feel it, would he? It's not about dollar figures. I think we'd do better to think percentages. And 
first century synagogues, they didn't pass an offering plate around in their meetings. They placed the offering plate in a prominent position in the building. So when worshipers walked in, they would drop their money into the offering receptacle. Now, remember, people didn't use paper money in that day, so a big gift made a big noise. On one occasion, Jesus uh, pulls his disciples alongside him, and they sit down in a place where they can watch people coming by into the house of worship, bringing their offerings. And Jesus pointed out the rich. The rich would come in in their fancy clothes, and they'd drop their big gold coins into the offering. Clink, 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 right? That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But then a, a woman entered. She was a widow, one of the most vulnerable people groups of that day. She had just two small copper coins. They probably didn't even make a sound when she dropped them in. It was embarrassing, actually, how little she gave in comparison to the rich. Mark chapter 12, verse 43, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. When you give, are you just giving out of your wealth? I was wrestling with this passage in Mark 12 yesterday as I'm driving up to Park City for a Park City service. And I came up with a phrase that encapsulates the point. I'm going to bring it to you now. Brace yourself. If it doesn't pinch... It doesn't clinch. Huh? Yeah, probably won't make a slide, but use it if it works. Let's, let's start thinking in percentages. Um, many of you are familiar with the spiritual discipline of tithing. A tithe means a tenth. That's giving... 10% of your income away. Gulp. The very idea of this discipline is terrifying. Maybe for you it's because you live paycheck to paycheck and you don't know where you'd get 3%, 2%, 1%. Oh my word, where does 10 come from? For others of you, the fact of the matter is you make a lot of money. And 10% of your income is a very big number. Wow. What if we started thinking percentages? What if we started thinking percentages? If you dare to trust God and tithe, he'll take care of you. That's my experience. I'll tell you, I... I I'm a church kid. I grew up journeying with Jesus, and I've been tithing all of my life. Now, I don't say that to brag, oh, good night. I say that to tell you, 
you'll be just fine. Really. I'm somehow still able to clothe myself with fancy little shirts with little cuffs that roll up like this. You'll be fine. You'll be better than fine as you trust God and his economy. But look, tithing may be too big of a pill to swallow. Pick a percentage and start giving. Here's the idea. Discipline yourself to live on less. So others can have more. That's how it works. That's how it works. So let's think of priority giving, percentage giving, finally, progressive giving. And I'll tell you a big problem of tithing. <laughs> uh, for some of you who have been journeying with Jesus for a long time and you've developed that habit decades ago. The problem with tithing is it can be too limiting. And we can think of it as something we do and we check it off the list. And then we have license to use the 90% for selfish gain. Slow down, Turbo. <laughs> tithing is not an end all to materialism. I know people who tithe religiously, yet money is still their master. So here's what the idea of progressive giving means. Raise your percentage. Each year evaluate it. What might it look like to give more next year than you did this year? When you get a raise, don't just immediately move to upgrade. What if it's an opportunity to help more people? I love the way Paul pointed to the churches of Macedonia who were impoverished, who were persecuted. He pointed to them and he said, they get it. They get it. But I'll tell you, if, if their ancient example is a little out of reach, you don't even need to look that far for inspiration to be generous. The reason generosity is such a big deal to God is because it is a defining characteristic of who he is. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The very essence of God is generosity. If you've experienced God's grace, I pray it inspires you to spend your money a little differently. Now, it's at this point in a sermon on generosity that you might expect a pastor to ask the connection team to come forward and we can pass the offering buckets around and take up another offering. And that might be appropriate on some occasions, but not today. Instead of receiving an offering, I would like for us to receive communion. And remember Paul's words about the sacrifice of King Jesus. He gave up his life so we could live. Now, remember what discipleship is about. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is an apprentice. We are people who are learning from Jesus how to do life. 
Jesus gave up his life so we could live. Paul is asking us to take a careful look at the grace of God and let it inspire us to follow suit. So that's what we're going to do. You may not be familiar with the tradition of Christian communion. Um, it, first of all, let me say this about our community. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're just visiting and you will tell you, you don't have to be a member of Capital to participate. You're welcome to join right in with us. We'd love to have you. Uh, however, some of you may just want to observe today, and that is perfectly acceptable as well. In a few moments, when our, our connection team passes the trays, just let them pass right by you and hand them to the person next to you. Please feel comfortable doing that. We're just thrilled to have you here with us today. But here's what I'd ask for all of you to do is hold on to the bread and hold on to the cup because we'll receive together in just a few moments. As our hosts come forward, I'd like to invite you to open your hearts to reflect on the character of God revealed on the cross and revealed in this song that Adam and Susanna are going to share with you now. In Second or in First Corinthians chapter eleven, the apostle Paul writes, "The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.' Would you take the bread and eat it?" In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood." Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you take a drink. Lord, as we think about the great sacrifice you made on the cross, Help us to carefully consider the sacrifices you might be calling us to make. As we carefully consider the generosity of the cross, may we carefully consider the generosity you're calling us to. Lord, I pray you'd give us the wisdom, the commitment, and the discipline to look carefully at our finances. And with love and joy, may you help us find new creative ways of being generous. Not just with our finances, but with our time and with our energy. May you mold us into the kinds of humans who naturally respond with generosity. It isn't fair. Generosity isn't fair. We earned it. We deserve it. But there's nothing fair about grace. And that's pretty good news. So Lord, may we catch a vision to be a part of your plan. 
your generous, loving plan to bring heaven on earth. I pray this for my friends who are disciples of Jesus. I pray this for my friends who are here today. Who may not even be sure you're real. May they find the faith to put your words into practice so you can prove yourself real to them. Lord, I pray as they are among us today, even today, when we're teaching a message on money, Lord, even now, may their eyes be open to your grace and your love. And may they experience the love of our community. We're so thankful they could be with us today. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things together in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Oh, friends. How about we baptize a couple people? The two individuals you will meet in a moment have made a decision to trust Jesus with their lives. Now, you may not be familiar with Christian baptism, so I'll explain what you're about to observe. Baptism is a beautiful symbol of what God has done in us, how we've died to ourselves, being raised to new life in Christ. But there's another symbol it conveys as well. It's the simple image of being washed clean. After Paul the persecutor encountered Christ Jesus, a a man named Ananias asked him plainly in Acts 22, verse 16. Now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. What are you waiting for, he asks. Stop wallowing in shame and guilt. Be disgust and disgrace behind you and be baptized. The people you're about to meet have been washed clean by Christ Jesus. This is one of the most important moments of their lives. We get to be here with them. So when they come up out of the water, whether you know them or not, will you celebrate with them? Now, if you all don't mind... You just hang here for a minute. I'm going to talk to them for a second. Hi. We're going to let them continue to celebrate. I want to tell you a few things, point you to a few resources. Along the lines of our topic of generosity, I want to recommend a book to you. It's called The Generosity Factor by Ken Blanchard and Truett Cathy, two highly acclaimed leaders who love Jesus and have a lot to teach us about generosity check out their book. We don't stock it in our bookstore normally, but that's one That's one to order. It's one to download. I highly recommend it. Also, we want to make two resources available to you, these two images. First, a verse for the week. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. We read it a little earlier. I also want to make this graphic available for you. Excel in the grace of giving. Both of these images you can download from our online bulletin from our social media council away this week. Uh, I'll tell you this. As our service ends, if you have a need and you'd like to receive prayer before you go. I know we got a lot happening up here on this stage, but just wait a few moments and make your way up to the front. There will be some people waiting here for you to to pray for you. I hope you take advantage of that. My prayer for all of you is this. No matter 
what season of life you find yourself in. May you be inspired by the generosity of Jesus to excel in the grace of giving. Thanks for being here today. Grace and peace.